Welcome to the Sustainable Clinical Medicine Podcast. I am your host, Sarah Smith. I am a practicing rural family physician and the charting coach. This is the podcast for physicians and advanced practice providers who are ready to step back from the busyness of their clinical day to share ideas, question everything, and redesign their clinical day. We are redesigning clinical medicine to create sustainable clinical days and create time for our lives outside of medicine. Join us for discussions with world experts who are helping design sustainable models of clinical medicine and the physicians or clinicians who have discovered or designed sustainable models of clinical medicine for themselves. Welcome back, everybody. So we are interviewing today Maleni Argo. This is one of my uh, physician coach friends, but she also does a significant amount of work with physicians working in their clinical day. So I am going to let you introduce yourself. Thanks so much for coming. Hey, 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 Sarah. Oh my goodness. This is so awesome to be with you here this morning. I feel like um, I know you really well just through your work and seeing you in the community and all the goodness you've been bringing to physicians and charting. Um, I am a internal medicine doc. I live in Athens, Georgia. I currently work in outpatient setting and um, I'm married. I have two boys that are 17 and 25 and um I think you just wanted me to introduce myself a little bit. I discovered coaching about three years ago. I was completely burned out and didn't even know it. I had, um, over the years, I'd been in practice for a little bit, right at about 20 years. I'd gained a lot of weight and had found coaching through weight loss. And as I discovered coaching, the weight started coming off. And the next thing I knew was that my relationships were getting better my time at work was getting better and just realized that I had been putting all of my eggs in the basket of work and but work was bleeding into everything. So I was spending about 60 hours at work. And the first thing I did when I realized that I was really diluting my pay by spending those extra 20 hours That to me was a huge motivator. I used to, like a lot of women physicians, I would wake up on Saturday and Sunday before the family got up at about six o'clock and I'd chart from six to nine o'clock in the morning thinking I'm not hurting anyone because everyone else is asleep. And that was the first thing that I got rid of was those two, those morning, morning hours. And it was amazing. Once my mind shifted to think that, okay, no, I'm not doing this anymore. All of a sudden, those little excuses when I was tired at the end of the day, instead of thinking, oh, I'll do this on Saturday, I just started pushing through those feelings of overwhelm and anxiety just to get it done because I knew I wouldn't have Saturday and Sunday. So I finished that and ended up getting my own personal coach and things just got better and better. And I thought I would go into administration because I just really loved the coaching. And so decided I would become a coach and maybe apply for the chief medical officer at my job. That role was new and up and coming and thought I would apply for that. And then I realized that their agenda would be completely different than mine. 
So at that point, I just sort of decided that I didn't want to um, do that and found that I've spent the last three years helping physicians in a variety of ways, mostly female, but I do have uh, probably about a fourth of my practice are male physicians that I've helped. So, and that's me pretty much. So I work clinically as of this year, I went to three days a week. I work Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, and I'm off on Thursday and Friday where I do my, my coaching work. Nice. Okay. So now I'm really curious. <clears throat> so you had work to do on Saturday and Sunday morning, and then you decided, it sounds like you decided that's a no. I'm not doing yes. that anymore. But where did that work get absorbed to? Like it's so for those of us who are um still in that moment of, well, there's three hours of work on Saturday and three hours of work on Sunday. Now where am I gonna put that? It sounds courageous. So tell us a little bit about that shift if you can remember. Yeah, a lot of that shift was that I would find at the end of my day when I was tired and when I was um overwhelmed. And when I was anxious, my mind would immediately go to, you don't have to do this now. You can just do it Saturday. And so I started identifying that thought and saying, no, I can do it now. And I would say, it's okay. You're just feeling anxious. And I had to really work through that anxious and overwhelmed feeling and tell myself, you know what, Melanie, you really want to put this off because you don't want to feel this feeling, but it's okay. It's just a feeling. Mm. And so there were several things. The other thing was that I was going down all these rabbit holes. I'm sure a lot of your people will identify like a hemoglobin was just a little bit low. Well, I'd want to know what was the last six hemoglobins. And I'd end up on this, this wild goose chase trying to figure out what had been done, what hadn't been done. And I think I just got a lot better at making decisions with the information that I had in front of me instead of feeling like I had to go back and look at a bunch of different things. Um, so I think my decision-making got better. I think my um, my um, not having that valve to make me think, okay, I'll just step away from this and go to something else. I became much more efficient. Mm. That decision-making is very interesting because I see that a lot where you just get stuck in a rut where you just feel like you're spinning around in that inbox, doubting everything <laughs> about your, whether it be your clinical practice, you're just tired. At the end of the day, your brain is tired. And if that's when we're doing this difficult work, like the inbox is a significant amount of work because you are making those high level decisions still. But then if self-doubt creeps in, then you're down a rabbit hole, like you said. So how does that happen? How do you go from spending 20 minutes trying to figure out this hemoglobin to saying it's just a little bit, it's just a little bit not good? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things that I started doing was really managing my mind around making these decisions and becoming a lot more efficient. And the surprising thing is that my confidence really shot up. Like I could definitely go through a differential, decide what was most likely, come up with the treatment plan based on what was most likely, right? So this hemoglobin that was 0.2 below normal, I would look back if the patient seemed stable, I would get follow-up labs in a few weeks and then also get... um 
you know, maybe an iron and a B12 and try to figure out and and then have a plan for the next step without really having to go back and do a bunch of excavation. I may look at just one past hemoglobin and really trust that we would figure it out in a more efficient way. Um, the old me may have picked up the phone, maybe would have asked when was the last blah, blah, blah. Are you having any problems? And it, it just really cutting down on that time. The other thing is I started delegating a lot more. So having my staff at, call the patients, um, I started not getting on the phone nearly as much as I had in the past and having my staff ask key questions or bringing the patient back quicker so that I could talk to them in person and not waste the time there. Yeah. And again, these are those steps in confidence that you're talking about. You can see that. I, I think that first one of the first rungs I heard you say was, I'll, I can figure it out. So I can move forward with this result and figure it out rather than I need the answer right now, which I think possibly spins us backwards in time through the chart, whereas I'm going to figure it out and and trust that you will. That's that level yes. of confidence, right? Yes. And trust that I'll figure out a piece of it, right? It's I don't have to solve this mystery but I can for sure add another piece like, oh, is it iron deficiency? Is it B12 deficiency? And I could gather information instead of what you said. I don't have to go back and be the detective and interview everybody and their sister and figure out who did it where, <laughs> so yeah. to speak. Yeah. And yeah. even the process of delegation can feel really scary. Um, letting somebody else do work that you've been doing for years. Um, can you tell us some of the things that you delegated that you, um, and like an example, if that, if there's one there. Yeah. So thinking about, I discovered this belief that I had, and that's that I don't trust the medical system which was so undermining, right? It had me check, check, checking. It had me micromanaging. It had me doing things myself and bypassing the people that are there to help and support, to, 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 to support me. Um, I started ha- making the assumption that they were capable mm-hmm. and giving them things with very specific instructions and sort of letting go a little bit. So for example, Let's just go back to, you know, you have an abnormal lab. I would have, you know, the nurse call them back. Hey, when w- I don't have a colonoscopy listed, when was it? Are you having, have you noticed any blood loss? Have you blah, 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 some really pointed questions. And then giving them a decision tree. If the answer is no, let's have them go for blood work in two weeks and see me in a month or whatever. So I started having more confidence in their ability and started deciding that they came to work to do their best and that their best was going to be good enough. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you also helped set them up for success by, did you help them with that decision tree on what you would do with the answers to those questions? Yes, yes, yes. So I would oftentimes put it in the note and with trial and error, a lot of things I was doing myself, I was able to um, sort of talk it out loud. And as we started talking, they really, um, my medical assistant ended up figuring out um, a lot of what I like and don't like and started sort of doing some things without me asking her to. And she really enjoyed her job a lot more, right? She wasn't just bringing back patients. She was, 
I think a big shift now that I'm thinking of it was that I started seeing us as a team and that we all had little bits and pieces of this patient care that we were doing and we were all working together instead of it being completely on my shoulders. Yeah. Completely on your shoulders is really lonely. (laughs) Very lonely and heavy and so much pressure. Mm -hmm. One of my fears was of getting sued. And I realized that everything kept coming back to, I'm going to get sued. I'm going to get sued. I need to check, check, check. I need to, I need to dot this I, cross this T until one day I was coaching on it. And I realized it is true. I may get sued. Even if I do everything correctly, that is a risk of practicing medicine. It's so much of a risk that we all carry malpractice insurance. Mm -hmm. But I made the decision, do I want to live every single day focused on I may get sued? Or do I want to focus every day on, hey, I'm going to do my best and help as much as I can help. And sometimes I'm going to be completely human and mess it all up. And maybe get sued. I know myself. I know my intention. I'm super caring and I love these people. And sometimes that's not going to be enough. And I think just accepting that really helped me to be a much better clinician because I wasn't lost in my head thinking, oh, you're going to miss this. You're going to miss that. And instead I was completely focused on the patient and was making more decisions from this intuitive place of what I thought the number one diagnosis was with a little bit of a differential instead of feeling like I had to cover this huge differential and maybe miss the actual thing that's going on. Mm. So helpful and so unleashing when you don't feel like you're going to be punished for everything you do. Yes, exactly. And I think one of the things that you said is lonely is that it was so lonely practicing medicine that way. I became a lot more fun at work. I I started, you know, was able to to start joking with the staff and having some real um, jovial conversations. And we all, we started huddling. I don't know if you guys huddle at all, but we would huddle first thing in the morning about all the patients we had to see. And it became, um, work became fun again. Oh, that's lovely. So tell us, the how does this huddle work? What have you found has worked for you? So what we when we initially started huddling, we would go over, um, I have uh, two medical assistants. We have a, I have a PA and I have uh, a front office staff. So all of us would stand up at the front and go through our list of patients that we were seeing for the day. And so we would talk about what worked the day before, what didn't work, some things like, for example, the EKG machine had been down. We talked about that. And we would only spend about five minutes talking, but it got us all on the same page. And we started realizing things like, okay, your pneumonia shots are a little low, or, you know, we'd have one patient that would always... um need a little bit extra time. So whenever we saw them on the schedule, we're like, okay, this patient needs a little bit extra time. We need to make sure that this is just the way that it, that it is, that it doesn't run us behind. So I think it has just helped us to just run through the list, spend five minutes and all of us get on the same page. Got it. Now, what about when we're bringing patients back for that hemoglobin you want to discuss or that thing in the inbox that you wanted to discuss? So I get a lot of objection about this, that my wait time's too long and it's going to be a month before I can get him in or, or longer. Um, 
what happens there? What what is the the ideas that you've had to help with that? Yeah, oftentimes, um, especially now since the pandemic, we have video visits available. So it depends on if I think it takes it's going to take me longer than five minutes, then I'll add on a video visit. Um, and that usually only take doesn't take us very long. Um, it's work that I'm doing anyway. So I'd r- much rather get compensated for the work that we're doing and the patients appreciate it. Oftentimes we just jump on the call with them, discuss whatever it is that's going on. Um, unless I need to bring them in, if I need to bring them in, then I will. I, we just always find a place to put them. I do have, um, same day appointments available. I think I have three slots available. So usually within the week, I can find a place to put them. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So with the, um, the finding the spots, we often talk about kind of understanding what is the, from your perspective as a physician, how many patients do you anticipate that you kind of squeeze in, fit in, need to get in in a week, and then starting to plan for that so it's no longer random, added on, double booked. We're actually starting to be proactive in that demand. Is So that three visits a day that you keep for same day, that's a process that you've kind of would have reviewed from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, So one of the big changes millennia after coaching is that I'm only one person. I only have so much bandwidth. The old me used to think if they're my patients, I have to see them. That's no longer true. I have three additional visits. If you need to see me the same day and I don't have an appointment, I refer you to urgent care and my patients, do they get upset? Yes. Do I get upset yet? I tell them, you know what? I wish I had more bandwidth. The old me used to double book. I don't do that anymore. I have a certain amount of resources. My resources aren't limitless. I give it a hundred percent while I'm there. But as soon as I'm off, I have found that millennia needs a life. I need to leave medicine for part of every single day. And to me, making it to my son's sporting events is so important. And I know that if I say yes to adding on a bunch of patients, and that's going to mean that I'm going to have to end up working late and possibly missing. Now, we added this PA as of January, so I've had more availability because of her. Um, but it took a lot. It took a, it took a lot of mental processing and undoing of this medical culture that says the patient comes first that says that I have to accommodate everybody else's needs. You know, I think that's been a big shift for me is to recognize that I have some pretty significant needs, that I am working sort of at the top of my ability. And in order to do that, I have to be rested. I have to take care of myself. I have to, there's only so many decisions, as you all know, not only are you seeing those patients, but you're also having a bunch of extra questions, medications that are refilled, prior authorizations, labs, consultant notes, diagnostics. It's not just seeing the patients that are in front of you, but it's also getting that inbox done. And so, you know, just doing my best to get them in and coming up with a, with, with the plan that, that, that works and really being more fluid at the, we have a really good notion. Like if, if people cancel an appointment, the girls know one of the things of the huddle when we huddle is I'll say, Hey, I have Mr. X. I need to see him this week for blah, blah, blah. If we have a cancellation, let's get him in. 
So they're, as they're looking at the list, you know, if we have a physical that's scheduled, we can usually get a, a physical that cancels. I can usually get a patient or two in that time slot. Nice. And then with the designing of your day, so you've got your patient time and then you've got the rest of today's work. Where have you found that works for you doing that, the rest of today's work? How do you fit that into your days when you're there? Um, That's a really good question. So the old me used to get really upset when I'd have to wait on my medical assistant. Um, I hate even admitting that, but I used to get, I used to spend so much of my day in frustration thinking, why aren't they more efficient? Where are they? I just need help with the path, whatever it is. So I don't do that anymore. If I have a second, let's say the medical assistant isn't available and I've got a PAP or a rectal exam or genital exam that I need to do, whatever it is, instead of getting frustrated and upset and going looking for her, I'll leave her a sticky. I need you in room two, come find me. And I'll run back to my office and um, it, look at a few things. I, I like the term Ohio. It's only handle it once, which is where I try to just look at my inbox and just take care of a few things. I'll answer a few phone notes. I will, you know, take care of a lab in the, and usually in the time Let's say it's four minutes. By the time she comes back, I've gotten a few things done. So just fitting fitting it in um, as the time goes on. Okay. All right. Do you have blocks of time that you do work as well? Um, you know, lunch, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I do take a lunch, but I only eat for about, I mean, I, I step away from my computer probably 15, 20 minutes. And the remainder of the time I'm, I'm working on my, my inbox. Um, at the beginning of the day, I have about 30 minutes. And at the end of the day, I have about 30 minutes. Okay. And then in between patients. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the, the evenings. So at the end of the day, you were talking about the, the tiredness, the overwhelm, the decision fatigue, all of that as being, um, pretty prominent. How is that now? So what does that look like at the end of the day now for you? Oh, it's still there. You know, one of the things I often coach on is um, I like to think of it as willpower. Uh It's like we wake up every day and our meter is full. And as we make decisions, as we see patients, as we refill prescriptions, every single little task that we do, it sort of um, empties that tank. So things that are really complex, I like to leave for the morning when I'm fresh. So like an abnormal CT scan that needs follow-up and that you really have to think about. I don't even try to tackle that in the afternoon. I try to just table that for first thing in the morning. And just to recognize that my thinking, my um, reasoning skills are way better during the morning. And, And if you notice, it's easier for me to complete my notes for the first half of the day, the second half of the day, I have to use a lot more encouragement. So like when I get back, I don't, I'm one of those people that does not, I do not chart in the exam room. I chart, I I leave the exam room, run back to my office, which is just right across the hall or whatever and chart there. But I find myself having to do a lot more cheerleading in the afternoon. Like, come on, Melanie, three minutes now, 10 minutes later, you got this note, just get it done. Of course, you don't want to do it. Yes, you think it'll be easier later, but it won't. And that my mental chatter really, really increases in the afternoon. 
and just recognize it's not just me, it's everybody, all of us. As our day goes on, your willpower adjusts, you know, your energy level, your, your, um, your pizzazz or whatever you want to call it is definitely down as the day goes on. And just accepting that that's just a, just a fact. Got it. So we've got human physiology. And then we've got, and what I loved is you called yourself a cheerleader. So my cheerleader comes out in the afternoon. I think that for many of the physicians, I'm listening to what they're afternoon sound like and it's dread and it's overwhelm and it's too hard and I can't do this and I'm I'm uh why me (laughs) why does it have to be like this and this is so unfair the system's broken I can't believe they make us do this like there's a lot of um the opposite of what I would call cheerleading so this this is like profound for some of the people listening here Yeah, it really, it was, it was life-changing for me because I had this voice in my head that was almost adding resistance to everything I did. Like, this is ridiculous. You know, this has taken forever. Patients are so inconsiderate. My staff isn't helpful. And it was, imagine, I mean, it's like you're, imagine someone outside of you yelling all this stuff at you all day. It's heavy. It, it um it makes the day go by so incredibly slow and it's just yeah it's a lot of scarcity and as soon as i started hearing that voice do i still hear those things yes but now i have this new voice which i always tell my clients i said you know what you have an inner cheerleader she you have put her in a locker somewhere and you've stuffed her in there you need to go open that locker help her up dust her off and give her a megaphone and and have her help you come up with some key phrases. I mean, for me, it's like, Melanie, you got this. Melanie, no, there's no one better than you. All you have to do is figure out a little bit more of this puzzle. Just do your best and forget the rest. Three minutes now, 10 minutes later, because it is true. What I found is if I document right then and there, I can get it done in just a few minutes. If I take it home or do it after the patient's gone, it's like that time, like, is three times as long. Yeah. Because you have yeah. to then store it somewhere in your head. Yeah. It's time to dump it back out again. Exactly. Yeah. Love it. Exactly. Love it. Okay. Yeah. A few more places to go. Um, what about the the demanding patient, right? They all come in with a list. Yeah. What? How how do you, you look at that? Well, the first thing is the patient that comes in with the list, they want control. Why do they want control? They want to feel better. They don't feel well. When people don't feel well, they don't act well. So the first thing is I normally let them free talk for at least five minutes. I sit down, let them tell me everything. And then if I can get my hand, the first thing I tell them is I become empathetic and engaged, empathetic. This is, you know, there's something that I call the internal eye roll. This used to happen to me all the time. I used to come in, the patient would start talking and immediately on the inside, I was already dreading going, oh no, this is ridiculous. My whole day's going to be shot. And I'd go into this whole thought spiral in the meantime, the patient is still talking. So if you can imagine their lips are still moving, bop, 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 
So while I was lost in my head, they've told me a ton of stuff that I didn't hear. So therefore, I'm even more behind. So one of the things that I've developed is really it's shifting your focus. I call it the hand. If you think about this hand, you guys can't see me, but this hand that's above your head and the hand is just talking and it's where your thinking is pointing. When my thinking, my hand is pointing at me, I'm not listening to the patient. So I'm completely lost. So I think about the hand and just shifting it to shifting it to the patient. <laughs> so when I do that, one of the ways that I get refocused on the patient is to tell myself, hey, Melanie, being sick is no fun. And when you're sick, you want someone to listen and you're not at your best. So really giving them five minutes for them just to talk. And normally I, I'll say, wow, it sounds like you've really thought a lot about this. This sounds really frustrating. I kind of try to try to um, mirror back whatever emotion I think that they're feeling. Like, it sounds like you're feeling really frustrated. Oftentimes you're like, you'll get, no, I'm not frustrated. I'm angry or whatever it is. Um, and we've, and I said, you know what? You've had a lot going on and I care and I'm going to help you to try to figure this out. Let's try to figure out what the top three priorities are. And it's amazing. People, just the fact that you've listened can be super helpful. And oftentimes figuring out where they've been, what, you know, the engaged part is to ask them open-ended questions. So it's, what is the biggest thing you fear? That one's a good one. Oftentimes it's cancer. Oftentimes it's something that you could never imagine what their fear is. And oftentimes it's so off the radar that just being able to tell them, well, no, I don't, this is not cancer. There's nothing about what you're telling me that sounds like cancer. Or asking them something like, what's most important to you? What's the one thing that if we could really improve that would make a huge impact on your health and why? And just realizing that I'm their partner. I don't have to solve it. I really don't. I don't have to solve the whole big picture. If I can just help in one teeny tiny little way, which may be adding a medicine, it may be recommending another test, it may be getting records. Sometimes that's all that they need. Sometimes it's just doing a lot of listening and me saying, you know what, it sounds like you've had a lot done. I think the best thing we can do is let's get all of the records and let's review it all again and see where we go and not taking it personally and really realizing that it's just, you know, the old me used to walk into the room and it was my agenda when I walked into the room. Me after coaching, I walk in and it's the patient and their agenda and me just figuring out, well, how can I help in these next 15, 20 minutes? So, and how, yeah, yeah, and and how can I turn that hand so that I'm focused on them and not focused on me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just part of noticing the internal dialogue. So important. I think that you've really brought that home today to let us know. Kind of the before and after is so useful. So if you've got people in the before, what do you think that they? What would be the most helpful first? steps do you think for them when they're sitting in that misery that loneliness the internal not cheerleader where do we start what do you think is uh yeah. some ideas the first place is just awareness 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 realize that you're doing it and when you're when you're stuck in your head you're not present and when you're not present you're not listening to the whole story so it takes even longer to figure out what's going on with this person 
you don't you don't get the story. The patient doesn't feel heard. You're really not moving forward. So the first thing I do is I have this big um, hand, which they won't be able to see, but you can see it. So this is the hand. It's a big it's a big uh, plush hand. So the first thing I say is to recognize when the hand is pointed at you. That means that you're focused on yourself and your thoughts are on you and the system and how this is all not fair and really focus on getting yourself centered on the patient. And by that, I mean, moving the hand to become empathetic and engaged, empathetic, meaning this is a person who's dealing with some real emotions. And I think the emotional part is the hardest part when you realize this person is angry and sometimes just acknowledging, it doesn't mean you have to agree. It's sort of saying, Hey, sounds like this has been super frustrating and you've been a real advocate for yourself. And then becoming engaged, just it's amazing what one open-ended question can help them, can help the patient feel like you're forming an alliance with them. Mm. So important. Love it. Yeah. So awareness, awareness, awareness. That's the first step. And then deciding how you're going to get yourself uh, more in tune the next time And, and realizing it's completely normal. It happens to all of us for the longest time. I thought it was just me. I was coaching on how to have more happiness, how to have more fun during my day. And I realized that me getting lost in my thoughts and me judging everything, I would judge the patient, the medical system, myself for having all of these thoughts, the time, my staff. I mean, it was, it wasn't good that the pool that I was swimming in was, was just really filled with lots of murkiness and negative emotion and it didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, th- and then what drove you to decide that Saturday and Sunday mornings was, were a no? So where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? Oh, that was completely financial. So I took my salary. So you, any of you guys can do this. Take however much time you're spending on your work and divide your salary by it and come up with an hourly rate. What I found is that my hour, I was, I was diluting my pay by like $30 an hour. And that, and that in and of, I'm like, you know what? They're not paying, I'm not getting paid enough to put, invest all of this extra energy. And I think I, in my mind, I just decided this is enough. I put in enough time during the week that it's, it was one of those non-negotiables. It's like, I'm putting my foot down. Because I think for the longest time, I thought, well, I'm not hurting anyone. I'm not taking time away from my family. But it was. I mean, on the weekends, I was I wouldn't sleep well. And actually, the reason I got up and did it was because of the anxiety. It would help me not feel so anxious. So I decided that I needed to just, number one, admit that I was anxious and find other ways to cope with the anxiety instead of getting up and doing it. Hmm. So, so helpful. So helpful. So I think there's a couple of things there. One, you wanted to feel better. And two, you wanted to be able to start earning what you were supposed to be earning and not diluting it. And I love that I'm not hurting anyone when I'm doing this work on the weekend. And then you realize that you are because you're not showing up as your best self. Yes. And having the life you wanted outside of medicine, like you said. Yeah, for sure. So many of my docs are used to just not paying attention to them. It's almost ignoring their own needs and just pushing through because that's what they've always done. I recognize that after 20 years in medicine, it's, I, I really, 
was just sort of numb to my own needs. It's just, I always put every, all my other needs out, you know, my work needs came first or my kids needs and my needs came, came last. And part of the healing has come from realizing that I'm human and that I have needs and that I deserve things like lunch and going to the bathroom and setting limits on how much I I expect of myself. Mm. Well, thank you so much for your wisdom today. I think that we have learned so much from you. I really appreciate you being with us today. Ah, thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. I definitely think you're changing medicine, helping physicians in their charting, which is such a big part of our job, unfortunately. And thank you for being a trailblazer and for leading the way and for bringing so many awesome guest coaches into your program and for just leading the pack. It's just awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Have a great rest of your week. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for being part of the Sustainable Clinical Medicine Podcast. If you'd like to learn more or join us to help you get home with today's work done, go to chartingcoach.ca. There you'll find all the information on the premier lifetime access charting champions program that is helping physicians get home with today's work done with all the proven tools, support and community you need to create time for your life outside of medicine. We would love to see you there. Until next time, thanks for listening.